Somewhere in the bowels of the city that never sleeps. Kevin McCullough, radio host with Salem Media. Is a man also not sleeping. Syndicated radio talk show host Kevin McCullough. And that guy would like a word with you. Many of you know him from as Nostradamus. Of course that Kevin show is going to be great. The only thing that could be greater, of course, would be that Donald show. But we don't have that, so we have that Kevin show. Featuring the music of Dick Tunney and the Dream in Color Orchestra. And tonight, a U.S. Marine, World War II vets, and rifle, Andrew Vigia. The sketch comedy of John Crist. Director of some divine influence, Sherry Rigby. The fight for freedom, Chuck Barham. And winner of historic nine VMAs this week. 230 songs in her megamix. It's Taylor Swift in the spotlight. And now, live from Times Square, where the Dallas Cowboys have just sacked New York Giants quarterback Daniel Jones again, here's that Kevin. Not going to lie to you, friends. Opening weekend was ugly for New York football. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, the Jets won, yes, but their $190 million man, Aaron Rodgers, who, let's face it, the rest of the league, they, they're not that sad about Aaron Rodgers. And he's, he's such, well, he's such a, he's such a bragger. Anyway, welcome to the weekend. We've got a big one for you. Uh, you heard the whole lineup there. Chuck Barham, Sherry Rigby. John Christ is back with sketch comedy tonight, and we've got the one, the only, Taylor Swift. I just got to tell you about the spotlight tonight, though. Uh, there's this fellow by the name of Joseph James that has uh, put together these massive mega mixes of usually artists, different artists doing uh, different songs. And he puts them all together into kind of one offering. Uh, he he did something really smart. Since this is the uh, the AD, uh, this the, the name of this year is just... Uh, uh, T Swift AD. It's not 2023. There's no actual number associated with it. It's just T Swift AD. This will forever be the year of the Taylor Swift. She she's now hit. I think it's 190, 160 or 190 million in pre-ticket sales for her movie that doesn't come out until October 13th. That's insane. She broke every record of every arena for total attendance on um, uh, multiple multiple night events. That's insane. And she just won nine VMA awards, and, and the whole industry used to kind of make fun of her for going to the VMAs. She just set the record or tied the record for nine in a single night. Uh, it's just she's just having the year. So she's tonight, but we've got select portions of her mega mix from Joseph James for the Music Spotlight that count somewhere in the neighborhood of 230 songs in the completed 13-minute version of that. We don't have time to play that for you. But uh, we will post the 13-minute version on the uh, on the Rumble and the Instagram and the YouTube, and you can go see it there. But uh, kind of cool stuff. Anyway, I want to get to oh, – we've got an assignment desk weekend tonight, friends, that will just knock your socks off. Really, really good stuff. Um, so stick around. Big, big show. Uh, so he, he, I'm, I'm amazed when someone that holds public office keeps their word. 
it, it's such a rare thing. It's such a, a, a strangely glorious thing when they actually uh, keep their promises. And uh, in the Trump administration, you actually saw a lot of promises being kept. He, he said, I'm, I'm going to build a wall. And he builds a wall and he's going to get uh, prison reform done. And he does prison reform and he does tax reform and lowers taxes and helps businesses and does all that stuff. So much so that the that the Communist Chinese Party and the Joe Biden campaign and the Hillary Clinton people, they all got together and said, well, we got to make sure we we don't let him go back. So even though we had 11 million more votes in uh, 2020 as compared to 2016, and since no president that has won re-election in the modern era has increased their vote uh, in, in the last the modern cycle. They, they didn't increase their vote at all. Um, Reagan had slightly less. Uh, Bush had less. Obama had less. Clinton had less in his uh, re-election. Trump had 11 million more. Uh, but we're supposed to believe that um, the incapacitated man shuffling around the White House somehow uh, was the all-time record getter of presidential votes. Not buying it. And we'll see. We'll see what the uh, 2024 election does. But in between, we had the congressional elections of 2022. And that allowed Kevin McCarthy to become Speaker of the House. And what he does in the clip I'm about to play for you is one of the most beautiful things that's ever happened. Because a reporter tries to play gotcha, and he ends up forcing the reporter to admit the truth. Take a look. Said that, that both Chairman Jordan and Comer were not able to present anything that was an impeachable offense at this point. Is that an assessment that you share? You know, the impeachment inquiry is not impeachment. So what impeachment inquiry is to do is to get answers to questions. Are you concerned about all the stuff that was just recently learned? Do you have any concern? Have you asked the White House any questions? Yes. Okay. Do you agree that... Do you believe the president lied to the American public when he said he'd never talked to his son about business dealings? Yes or no? It's all right. You, you can't answer that? Do you believe when they said the president went on conference calls? Do you believe that happened? That's what the testimony says. Okay. Do you believe the president went to Cafe Milano and had dinner with the, with the clients of Hunter Biden who believes he got those clients because he was selling the brand? Okay. Do you believe Hunter Biden, when you saw the video of him driving a Porsche, that he got $143,000 to buy that Porsche the next day? Do you believe the $3 million from the Russian oligarch that was transferred to the shell companies that the Bidens controlled after the dinner from Cafe Milano took place? Okay, then I go back. Do you think the president lied that he, when but he is said... Is that an impeachable? Is lying an impeachable? Well, you want, you want to know... I'm not saying impeachment. All I'm saying is I would like to know, answer these questions. The American public ought to know, and that's what impeachment inquiry provides. And there you have the Speaker of the House schooling the reporter who was trying to get him. And, and her line of questions was kind of interesting to begin with. Uh, the committees say they don't have enough to impeach the president with, so why'd you open the inquiry? He just explained that the inquiry allows him to get answers to the questions that he just asked, that she all, that all the reporters there agreed are part of the evidence. So here you have uh, a reporter who's supposed to be objectively telling the story of what the facts are and making sure that people understand what, what the truth is. That's the simple job that the reporter is supposed to carry out. 
Ironically, it's the Speaker of the House that has to do the reporter's job back to the reporter. And when she's forced to admit that the evidence exists, that not only did President Biden tell us a fib when he said, I, I, I don't discuss my business deal, my son's business dealings with him at all. He went beyond that. He said, I've never met any of his business associates. I don't know about any of his deals. I've never had any contact with the people that he's done business with. Friends, now in the evidence, in the testimony, in the evidence, on the record, they have him meeting with the business associates. They have Hunter Biden driving a Porsche one day and receiving a check for $143,000 the following day to purchase the Porsche. Where did it come from? How'd the money get there? What product or service was Hunter Biden supplying that did not include his father's name, his father's image, his father's uh, presence as vice president? What was he doing that was so valuable that someone gave him a check for $140,000 and he was able to buy a Porsche with it? The American people do have the right to know. And this idea that lying is an impeachable offense, I don't know where she's been. That's what they tried to impeach President Trump on twice. And in fact, that's what they impeached Clinton on. The definition of is is, it's, it's always about telling the truth. And you know what? Our public servants should be about telling the truth. At least to us, we're their boss. They work for us, remember? Kevin McCullough, huge show tonight on That Kevin Show, coming up. I'm Senator Joe Biden from Delaware, and I'm here with President Harris to tell what? you What? Joe, do I look like a cackling hyena? Let's start over. Hi, I'm 45, and soon to be 47, too. Your favorite president. And we're here to congratulate, uh, wait, who, who are we congratulating? Joe, we've been over this. We're here to congratulate a great radio station on picking up that Kevin show Saturday nights but at 9 o'clock. But I'd rather fall off my bike at Brandon Falls than tell people about that Kevin show. You know that's not a real place, right? They named it after you because you felt, no, never mind. Wait, what? Anyway, congrats to News Talk 101 FM in Panama City, Florida. That's W-Y-O-O-F-M. Wait, Florida, but you beat me in Like Florida. a drum, baby. <laughs> like a drum. Well, that's not very nice. From New York, it's that Kevin show. See, I knew it. Ah, uh, come on, Kev. What's a few classified documents between friends? I told you. I told you all the time. I knew it. I knew he had some, too. Here he is. That Kevin. Kevin McCullough. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my next guest is someone who, um, like myself, has a keen interest in some of the events and the people and the personalities that uh, were in effect in World War II. And in fact, he's written a, a follow-up book to his bestseller, originally called The Rifle, called The Rifle II, Back to the Battlefield. It's published by Regnery, which is a sister company to Salem Communications, which is uh, 
the home of a lot of the radio stations and one of the television networks that this show is seen and heard on. But uh, why is he doing what he's doing in revisiting some of these uh, battlefields and places, and particularly with the particular piece of equipment that he is? This is something that we'll get into as uh, we uh, ask you to welcome Andrew Biggio. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for having me. You got it. Thanks for being here. Um, for people that didn't know about your first book, uh, you've you've kind of told these stories in a certain particular way. How did you arrive at the concept of the rifle? Well, you know, I'm not the first Andrew Biggio. I'm named after my uncle that was killed in World War II and uh, was my grandfather's brother, actually. And when I survived Iraq and Afghanistan, I started to read the letters that this Andrew Biggio wrote home before he was killed in action. And the first letter he wrote home to his mother was, uh, you know, dear mom, today we fired the M1 Grand rifle. Um, this is a new rifle of the time. It's so accurate. I feel so confident with this weapon. And he's writing home to his mom about this stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and I thought, wow, if he felt that powerful for this weapon 75 years ago at the time when I was reading the letters i need to go out and buy one i wanted to hold what he held i wanted to feel what he felt um i was dealing with i guess some sort of survivor's guilt being a veteran myself sharing his name i purchased this m1 grand rifle and i sat in my house with it and then i said now what <laughs> you know so my i showed my family the rifle at like a dinner um and they're like, well, okay, well, it's just a gun. Why do you have a gun at dinner, you know? I'm like, well, no, this is the, the piece of equipment. This is the the thing Uncle Andy had when he when he gave his life. And this is what he wrote home to, you know, great-grandmother to. And they didn't really get it, which is fine. And I understand that not all of them were veterans. But I was searching, for, obviously, for something more. And it wasn't until I thought about my neighbor who fought in the Battle of Okinawa hmm. that I thought would appreciate this a little bit more. So I knocked on his door, and this at this time he was now 92. This is going back about seven years ago. And I put that rifle into his hands, and he went from being 92 to 19 years old again, raising that weapon without a problem, putting it in his shoulder, waving it around. And we talked about the Battle of Okinawa for like four, three to four hours at least. And I said, Joe, I always want to remember this moment where you sign your name on the rifle. And he signed it. Joe Drago, 6th Marine Division, 22nd Marine uh, Regiment, Battle of Okinawa. When I left his house and I looked down at that signature, I knew I wanted to collect as many signatures and as many stories as possible and represent the whole war on this rifle. So that was the uh, that was the uh, genesis of this, and uh, this is volume two of some of the stories and some of the signatures that you've uh, acquired. Um, why Why are telling these stories so important to you? Because the World War II, pretty soon these guys are not going to be, and girls are not going to be able to tell their stories for themselves. Uh, I, mean, I mean, we're talking in four years. In four years, it is going to be nearly impossible to find a World War II veteran. Mm -hmm. And if they are, they're going to be 103. And so, you know, the World War I generation slipped right by us. Next thing you knew, we all woke up one day and they were all gone. And... 
we've done a lot better like via the media books, television, movies, miniseries, things like that with telling world war two a little bit more, because I think it was like one of the first recorded wars with, you know, the advancement in technology and television and movies and film and stuff like that. But what those guys went through, I think represent all veterans when they, when we say um, sacrifice and what they went through. When people watch Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers, they they know what veterans go through, and I think it's a huge thing for awareness of patriotism. Well, I I, I can't disagree with you on that. And on yeah. the cover of the uh, of the rifle too, and if we have a picture, we'll put this on the screen. Um, you can see the rifle and all the signatures that have been added to it um in uh, those kind of uh, really cool uh, markers that actually show up on dark backgrounds so you can see um the the stories that you feature in in this particular um version cover both theaters uh Europe and Asia and i for some you know my my listeners know that we're encouraging them to come with me next year for the 80th observance of D-Day and to uh kind of go back through some of these um uh, areas where some of these lives were lost and some of these heroes were made and to see for themselves uh, kind of the uh, terrain and what they were up against. But the the theaters were very different and the conditions were very different. The kind of the one thing that both theaters had in common was that it was just excruciating war. I mean, the, the Battle of the Bulge and, you know, every single island battle that took place in the Pacific were just excruciating misery just from the conditions themselves. Um, you've been back to a couple of these places with some of the World War II survivors. What what impressed you in those in those visits? What well, the most thing that impressed me is the locals who still live in these villages in rural Belgium, where the Battle of the Bulge was, in Normandy, France, uh, even in Germany, who come out to meet these liberators. 80 years after their actions. I mean, the hugs, the kisses. In in Bastogne, there's a parade every year called the Nuts Festival, representing <laughs> when General McAuliffe said nuts, you know. And they actually take peanuts and walnuts and they throw them from the City Hall balcony, you know, to to celebrate their, you know, independence, you know, their, their, their liberation. And, <clears throat> you know, I was marching one year in the parade and I was pushing a World War II veteran in a wheelchair and people were holding up their grandkids in the crowd over people's shoulders so they could see a living World War II veteran. Hmm. I mean, you know, we don't even remotely do anything like that in this country. I mean, we definitely have patriotism. We have Veterans Day, Memorial Day, but they're treated like we treat professional athletes. Well, they, they brought something more dear to them than we have lost here. Now we're, you know, we can talk politics and talk about the freedoms that we're losing currently, but we've not experienced what those who were hostily taken over by a foreign power and subjugated mm -hmm. uh, to the to that power. We've, we've not experienced that here. And um, by God's grace and hopefully the strength of the American military, we won't. But it's something that we have to be vigilant for. I'm very, very convinced. We're speaking with Andrew Biggio of uh, The Rifle and The Rifle 2. The Rifle 2 is his new book. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Be right back. Don't go away. Ready or not, he'll be right back. 
Back to that Kevin show with Kevin McCullough. And we're back. And friends, you heard me reference it last segment. But if you would like to go with us to the battlegrounds that we're talking about in this uh, very discussion, especially the ones surrounding Normandy and the beaches, the beach landings of D-Day, it was 80 years ago next summer that uh, D-Day was uh, enacted, that the liberation of Europe occurred. Uh, the the war in Europe came to a fairly quick conclusion uh, after D-Day, had to kind of push through barriers and get certain things done. But uh, that was the beginning of the end in Europe. It took longer in the Pacific. But if you would like to be with us, uh, friends, please go to thatkevintour.com, thatkevintour.com. We have very limited spaces available and you can put your deposit down and hold your seat. Uh, but uh, we're going to be there June 28th through July the 7th or something like that. It's going to be a short trip, but it's going to be a full one. We, we go London, Portsmouth, across the channel, Normandy, a few days there. We'll even do a wine tasting and some other things. And then we end in Paris uh, where the liberation took place and with a, a beautiful dinner, our final night there on the Seine River. And I'd love for you to join us. ThatKevinTour.com, ThatKevinTour.com. Uh, Andrew Biggio is my guest, and the book is called The Rifle Two: Back to the Battlefield. Uh, the rifle, of course, the the instrument that he had signed uh, by as many World War II veterans as he could uh, put the rifle into the hands of and uh, hear the stories of. And, um, Andrew, I'm just curious, as a veteran yourself, um, what strikes you about the, the men that you've had sign your rifle? <clears throat> I've had about 320 men and women sign my rifle, anything from Medal of Honor recipients to Navajo code talkers to cooks on ships to infantrymen to B-17 to Tuskegee Airmen, you know, the, I wanted to represent the whole war and get a little piece of everybody. The Pacific, and in the rifle, Europe. too, you've got one of the guys that served with Lieutenant Spears from Band of Brothers. So it's, uh, there's there's even some familiarity with even the bigger, more famous stories here. Yep, yeah, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about Frank Meniscalco. Um, you know, he was someone that always turned down TV and movie interviews and just totally never went to a reunion. And so that's, that's a, you know, that brings you right into your questions. Sometimes I meet guys who have been active and involved since the fifties in veterans associations and the war. And I, I meet other guys who literally didn't even save their uniform, went back to work, started a family, didn't talk about it, didn't communicate, didn't keep in touch with anybody. And um, Frank was one of those guys from the 101st Airborne of Dog Company 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment. This was a guy who, you know, he had a traumatic war experience. He was jumped in on D-Day, nearly drowned when the Germans flooded the fields at his drop zone, gets wounded in Carentan, France, evacuated back to England, rejoins his company, jumps into Holland, gets both of his legs shattered by a German mortar round, in October of 44 during Operation Market Garden. Um, evacuated again, and his two best friends from his platoon are killed in action in Bastogne. Hmm. And um, that's definitely not an easy life for an 18-year-old kid, you know, at the time. And um, I was fortunate enough to, to put that rifle back in his hands again and bond with him at his age of 100 and me being now 36. I started hmm. this project when I was 28. And um, I'm so fortunate for him to let me tell a story. 
Well, it's a, it's a powerful one, and it's just one of several. Uh, there's two volumes here. The Rifle is Andrew's original work. The Rifle 2, Back to the Battlefield, is what we're talking about. And you you did go back to the battlefield with uh, some of your subjects, and I'm just curious what that experience was like. Yeah, I'd been back 10 times, I believe, to Luxembourg, Germany, France, Italy, um, the Netherlands, and, uh, boy, uh, probably 30 different World War II veterans on where their foxholes were, the houses they took shelter in, the beaches they stormed, the river, where they crossed at the Rhine River, um, seeing their friends' graves again. Hmm. That's, I think, oh, I think that's one of the most gut-wrenching things is to see a 98-year-old man get down on his knees and grasp his friend's cross at the cemetery and cry and um, to remember that that young boy who never had a family, never had a life, I think that hits them very hard on these trips. <clears throat> what is it about being in a foxhole with each other that is such a bonding experience? Um, you, you served in a more modern era where warfare did change, but you still depended upon everybody that was in your unit. Uh, the cohesiveness of your unit was vital. The uh, commitment to the mission was vital. There, there's a lot of things that still carry through to this day. But let's take this quick break and then talk to me about what it, what is it about warfare in general that does that? But also, what, what do you think the secret was to why we call them the greatest generation um, when we come back? Andrew Biggio is our guest. The Rifle 2 is the book. It's by Regnery, uh, a wonderful partner at Salem Media. And uh, you can get a copy of it right now. Ready or not, we'll be right back. All right, Kevin McCullough, last few minutes with Andrew Biggio. The Rifle 2 is the name of the book, Back to the Battlefield. And again, friends, if you would like to see some of these very sites that we're talking about, places where these stories took place, come with us. Uh, we're going to go to World War II's uh, kind of most legendary uh, spots in Europe. Uh, we'll start in London, where uh, Churchill and Eisenhower kind of made the final decisions on D-Day. You know, they had a stop and start and weather was a mess and there was a whole whole story behind how they even got it launched. But then after we spend a day or two in London, we'll head to Portsmouth. We'll cross the channel very similarly to the way the uh, the young men did, although uh, we'll be in a much nicer uh, cruiser than they were. They were in very uh, tough uh, military uh, crewed uh, boats, and this will be a, a much more enjoyable uh, experience. But then when we land in Normandy, we're going to spend a few days going to the different landing uh, sites. We're going to go to where the paratroopers dropped. We're going to we're going to see uh, some of the most famous sites. You know, the, the church where the guy got caught and his parachute didn't open. <laughs> he was, we'll see that. Um, and, we'll, and we'll spend time with some of the locals that Andrew was talking about, who to this day are extremely grateful uh, for the U.S. and what we did in liberating uh, Europe. Um, and then we'll, we'll head down to Paris and close off the trip with a very nice couple of nights uh, in the City of Light, and uh, not the least of which will be a dinner cruise on the uh, Seine River before we return home. Andrew, um, battles change, technologies change. There's something about war that is awful for the participants in just about every generation that, that serve. 
But there, we as a culture, as a society, as a world, have kind of looked at the World War II service personnel, and we've we've labeled them the greatest. You served in Iraq. You 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 saw live action. What is it about that generation that set them apart? Do you think, in your mind, from other chapters that we've lived through? Yeah. So another thing I was trying to investigate is that you know we. A lot of veterans post-World War II, we live in the shadows of the greatest generation. They had the war that was good versus evil, uh, apparently black and white. And But you know what? It was like And it was enormous all- good versus enormous evil. I mean, it was like the stakes were we all become socialist Nazis or we, we let freedom live. I mean, it was like it really was like, you know, the, the pinnacle of those two ends. Yeah, and especially with, uh, at the finish line, the liberation of the concentration camps, you know. Um, and But I, sitting with these 300 World War II veterans and such, um, I think I felt a lot of them didn't feel like they were the greatest generation and that some of them, and that the, we as the United States did some not so great things to win World War II that would put a lot of GIs and soldiers in jail today if they were doing the same things the guys were doing in the Pacific to take these islands. And and they gave me a sense of normalcy. A lot of these veterans I sat down personal with that, you know, didn't want to die with their secrets, I guess, 80 years later. Um, but particularly, I think, why they're the, great, the greatest generation is because there was 16 million World War II veterans. The, the U.S. government gave out 16 million World War II victory medals. And that what that meant was your postman was a World War II veteran, your policeman was a World War II veteran, your doctor was a World War II veteran, the news anchor was a World War II, the politicians were World War II. Hmm. Everybody were World War II generation. I mean, it was an entire generation top to bottom. We don't have that these days. It's less, less than 1% uh, of the population serve in a um, volunteer military, not a draft. So... Um, they were they were just overwhelmed by the numbers and you know um what they were able to do us today as veterans are trying to keep what they built alive with these american legion posts vfws even just um laws and language of legislation to keep veterans benefits you know they had no problem passing veteran benefits back then because everybody in congress was a vet almost you know or everybody uh, voting was a veteran, you know, the support, the con- constituents were veterans. So that's why they were the greatest generation. They set up so much for our future, and uh, I hate to see it get reversed. We we have a few that have served in the military that are in Congress now, um, some that have, you know, post-Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Um, and it's interesting to see those servicemen come to Congress because they do push for different priorities uh, in, in in some instances, ones that haven't been pushed for a long time, specifically as it affects uh, the veterans. Um, are you hopeful that America is still grateful for the service of the men and women in uniform? Yeah, I am. And I think that has a lot to do with the generations before us. I think um, a lot of us, a lot of people saw that we ran to the, the recruiting stations during 9-11, which was like our Pearl Harbor. Um, we didn't get the end result that we should have gotten that so many veterans did fight for and win and, and blood, sweat and tears and sacrifice their lives. I think that is an absolute, absolute underlying five times government failure yeah. on the way that ended or could have ended. Um, Travis. And so, 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it bothers me just to even think about it. And um, <clears throat> but I think the general public and the and the people who see us actually have admiration for those who have who wanted to serve for the right purposes. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. Um, Andrew Biggio is our guest, and the uh, book is "The Rifle Two: Back to the Battlefield." What what what's your um, hope for w- when people read this? What do you want them to take away from reading "The Rifle Two? The Rifle Two. So you know, Rifle One. I wrote about why they are the greatest generation, and Rifle Two. I wrote about those who had a little bit more of a bumpy ro- road coming home after World War II. Guys who fell through the cracks, but were able to turn their lives around. So. Um, I want a lot of young veterans to see that they don't have to live in the shadows of the greatest generation, that those guys weren't always perfect also. And I want civilians to remember our World War II veterans before they're all all gone. Yeah, I think that is so important, so vital. Both of my grandfathers served. Uh, they were U.S. Navy um, attached, but they they served. They came home. They hardly ever talked about it. Uh, even as I wanted my grandfather to tell me more about it in uh, my later, in as I was growing up, his later years, um, it was just the hardest thing to do to get him to. Um, but that was kind of uh, in, indicative of the humility and of the, um, I don't know, just just the way that generation carries itself. They didn't they didn't seek glory. They they very much thought that they had to do what they needed to do for the for the right outcome. Um, and we would be a different nation today if they had not served and won sure. uh, that war. The Rifle 2, Back to the Battlefield is the book. Andrew Biggio, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you again down the road. Thank you for having me. You got it. Kevin McCullough coming right back. Don't go away. Ready or not, he'll be right back. Serving it up with a no-drink minimum. It's that cabin match. Ladies and gentlemen, she won nine VMAs this week. Here's the Joshua James Ultimate Taylor Swift Eras Remix.
230 songs contributed to the Ultimate Taylor Swift Eras Remix in an hour two, part two. Come right back.